Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down the movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Todd, who completes Wes. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by the Seance and Science Brigade. Combining the scientific method with complete gibberish to create absolutely nothing of value. Send your tax-deductible donation to the Seance and Science Brigade. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are uh, filmmakers, actors, writers, musicians. We tap dance. We sing. We play birthday parties we dress up as clowns basically everything and nothing all at once Uh, (laughs) we it's what we do we that's what we try to bring to every film discussion as our experience in all things uh creative and see what we can pull apart from the filmmaking process to you know make it interesting i guess as a conversation but also my goal every time we we do an episode uh is to learn something that i can use in my career um and to get better and it's happened so many times i i don't know if i'd say every single episode has been and this is episode 200 but i would say a lot of times i've found something that i do actually implement into into my creative process though one thing that uh we did recently was new for me that I didn't think I would ever use in my creative process well, was a table read. And it was fun. It was interesting. Um, I will say that before that, my opinion of table reads was very low. <laughs> and if you don't know what a table read is, uh, usually before you go into production, right, we, we're going to shoot for the next two weeks, this new episode of Breaking Bad. Um, and then usually like a few days before production starts, um, you sit, you get every actor in the script who's going to be playing a role to sit around the table. You'll get the producers, depending on who else. It kind of flexes from there, but you'll have your script supervisor sit and kind of read all the action lines, right? Um, and then all the actors in the script will read their lines. Uh, and you just go straight through the script, you know, nonstop, no breaks, uh, usually, unless maybe you're. Lawrence of Arabia, you probably need a bathroom break in there or interstellar. Um, but you, you sit down and you read through it all. And the reason I hate them, um, is because they're not really productive to the creative process. Like half the actors at least are going to phone it in because you're not going to waste your juice on a table read where no one's recording. You're not going to use a stitch of that performance where and some actors won't right? They'll get into it. But even with that, there's limited like amount that you could actually get into it uh, because there's no blocking. There's no sometimes the the, the entire rhythm isn't going to be there because of the lack of blocking, um, the lack of everything that's happening. Uh, and so you just kind of end up wasting a couple of hours of sitting and reading to each other. And because of all that, too, you're not usually going to be able to pull out anything uh, from a creative oversight like, oh, that scene isn't working at all how do you know it's not working? Uh, because there, there's no juice behind it in the first place, let alone like the ability to stop and say, Hey, can we, let's run that scene again. And this time you need to be thinking about this and you need to be thinking about this. Um, right. And let's go again. You can't do any of those adjustments on the fly. It's just going straight through. And to some degree, you know, I'm sure the producers, uh, maybe the line supervisor or something is able to pull out something like, Oh, I need to, keep an eye on this. But for the most part, creatively, it's just a fat waste of time, in my opinion. 
um, if, if you have a different view out there, like feel free to weigh in, I guess. But that's always been my experience until I saw Scott, our buddy, Scott Garrett Graham brought us all in to do a table read of a script that he was working on. Like he was doing a, a play. He wrote a play that was like 785 pages. <laughs> and he was like, I think I need a few more scenes. Let's sit around and read. Yeah, yeah. That is that is only a slight exaggeration. <laughs> only a slight. Love you, Scott. He broke out a, a fucking dictionary worth of uh, pages. And um, and we we sat around the table and, uh, you know, he he was gracious enough to let me read for a character and you read for a character and a few other people. Um, and I was like, okay, that was kind of fun. That was interesting. And I asked, you know, I, I had ideas about, cause I'd already read the script before I'd read the play before. And I, uh, I don't think I sent him any notes. Um, I didn't get, I wasn't clear if he wanted any notes or if he was just wanting to share this thing with me. And I'm not someone who gives notes unless explicitly asked for notes. Right. Uh, if you don't ask me for that, I am not giving you shit. Uh, because I don't know where you're at in your creative process and what is going to be productive to you as a note giver. And so I try to dance around that, you know, on eggshells. And now if you say, Hey, I need notes. Here's where I'm at in my process. I can kind of structure my notes so that hopefully I'm not destructive to what you're trying to do. Um, and instead am additive. And so, you know, we walked away from that table reading. I was like, Hey, was that useful? He's like, yeah. Like, I can see clearly my runtime needs to come down. I think we were pushing around three hours, which isn't completely accurate at a table read because you're reading all this action dialogue or the, are these action lines and that stuff could take a, a paragraph, right? And a paragraph could take three minutes to read when in reality it's like five seconds of movement on the, on the stage or in the scene. Um, and so it doesn't really translate very well as far as reading out loud goes um, now structured screenplay format, it holds together pretty well as far as uh, the ratio of one page usually accounts for about, you know, one minute of the screen time. And so I was interested in just seeing what I could learn from, you know, I've been working on a, a future script for the past year and a half and I was at a point to where I couldn't see what else I needed to change though. I still could feel things needed to change. Um, and so I was just kind of a, like an opportunity. I was like, you know what, let me grab a few people and let's do a table read. And so we did a virtual table read on, on Skype, um, grabbed you, grabbed Scott, grabbed my producer and grabbed, uh, a really talented actress, um, Kara Hope. And, uh, she sat in to play, uh, the lead character as well as a bunch of, uh, a couple of other side characters. Um, and I was really impressed with what she was doing. Um, especially with those side characters, but we sat down for a couple of, uh, for like an hour and 40 minutes, read through it. And I didn't know what I was going to take away. I was just kind of, let's see what we see kind of attitude. And I was really surprised to to take away as much as I did because again, table reads. And I told you this, you know, after the fact, uh, they're not fair. They're not fair to actors. It's really not a fair thing to give a note or a critique to any performance from a table read because you're cold reading these scenes. There's uh, even worse on Skype, like table reads, oh, you're yeah. already immobile, right? You're in your seat, your head's in your script half the, you know, 90% of the time, you're not even really making eye contact with your scene partners. 
let alone off book, let alone exploring the, the, the actual physical space that your characters are inhabiting. And you, I don't even know if you know how to do a character analysis, like, uh, let alone having had time to do a character analysis that you may or may not even know how to do in the first place. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> in like a thousand ways, it's so unfair to performers, uh, to, to try to walk away and say, yeah, that wasn't a good, or that was an amazing performance. It's like, uh, not the point at all. That's that. But even with that said, I was surprised that I was able to still kind of see like, I was able to get confidence in the scenes that I knew were working and could see, yes, this scene works. Like uh, there's a, a scene early on, there's a breakfast table scene between uh, a father and a daughter. And I could see that the read was all wrong, but I could see the rhythm was there. The rhythm that I wanted was there. The play was there. And even though tonally it wasn't what I was uh, wanting to do, it still worked despite the tone being wrong and that you know communicated to me this scene is going to work that that's all i really needed out of that uh as opposed to the scenes that were y'all nailed uh the tone was right the pacing was good uh that was just you know that's heartwarming stuff you know and that's a that's a nice confirmation of yeah the scene works and i can see it working right now that's really cool um those were really really cool moments uh the thing that really surprised me though was finding a couple of scenes that weren't working and there was no tweak that needed to happen to make it work. It was like, Oh, I just structured this scene entirely wrong. And now that I'm hearing everything out loud being said between two, three people, I see that now it just suddenly became like a a spotlight um, of obvious notes like, Oh, Wes, this, this is structured completely wrong. You're doing a back and forth when this needs to be a monologue. This needs to be someone just laying it out for another character. And that was like this big light bulb moment, you know, going off. I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And so what I was hoping to do after that was to take that table read and drop it into Premiere and start breaking it up that way. But what I've done is the exact opposite. Well, maybe not the exact opposite, but uh, instead what I'm doing is I'm going back through the script and recording all the lines using myself. Like I'm playing all the characters. We can call this the Dave Grohl cut. (laughs) 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 And and so I'm, I'm going through rewriting the scenes based on what I kind of learned from our table read and also what kind of inserting myself and saying is the rhythm is the pacing here. How can I rewrite this to start playing into more of the naturalism and it's changed a lot. Like a lot of scenes, there's one scene that I could feel it not quite working in the read. In the read, and I was like, "Let me see if it, I if I can just tweak a thing or two. And it still wasn't working. Um, and so I, I took several hours. I went and worked out, you know. And I think I was like cleaning up afterwards in the shower. And I hear Aaron Sorkin takes like seven or eight showers a day because when he's, <laughs> he hits a block. He's like, I need to take a shower, right? And it's kind of this reset, that idea of, I think, uh, uh, sensory deprivation, right? The, the audio, yeah, the sensory, yeah. all those things. Um, your mind is able to kind of let loose a little bit. And I've, I, we've all felt that, right? Uh, but just being in there, I was like, man, the scene isn't working. What if you just delete it? What happens if you do that? Okay, it kind of works, but there's still something in there you need. Okay, what if instead of deleting it, you delete all the dialogue and you watch the scene take place from 50 feet away. And now you're just watching the physicality of the scene. 
through another character's eyes. Maybe this character never enters that scene and we're watching them watch that scene. Oh, this plays now. And because I've already been building out the edit and I can see the emotional momentum and the tones flowing in and out, I could see that this character isn't even ready to enter that scene because of what she just experienced. Instead, she's watching it. And now we're creating an emotional depth and resonance. And there's this whole other experience um, that we'll talk about in, in today's episode, I think, uh, to some degree, uh, that makes emotional logic instead of like, you know, calculated logic. So yeah, it's, it was an interesting process, man. Uh, what was the table read like for you just as a, as an actor on the other side? I mean, it sucks, you know, honestly, (laughs) especially over Skype. I mean, it's one thing to be in a room with everybody else Mm -hmm. where I could, you know, like look at somebody out of the corner of my eye, see reactions and, and stuff. And, um, and kind of play off people, even if I'm sitting down, you know, the whole time. And it's another thing to be on Skype and, and doing it that way. But, but I mean, it was still fun. It was still mm-hmm. a, a lot of fun. It, really great to read through the work that you've been putting into to the script over the last year and a half or so uh, with other people and to see it manifest into something that actually was like a, a living, breathing thing, you know, at the end that that moved itself rather than having you to move it by reading it. That was really cool. I mean, as a performance thing, it was, you know, not fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think also there's a, there's this air of, um, you know, you feel you and I don't know if anybody else felt this, but I did just to be honest, you know, you feel like you're being judged in a way because it's the first mm-hmm. time you're reading through something um, and you're hoping that you're kind of on point, but there's no way you can be because you haven't even really talked to the director about what exactly in this scene you don't stop. You know, you're not like, like, Hey, you know, this is what I'm feeling for this explaining yourself and like having a back and forth. No, this is what I'm thinking. Uh, Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Let's, let's go with that or whatever. Like that doesn't happen. Um, So you don't, you kind of are just going off of, you're just kind of reacting, which in some cases I think is cool. But when it comes to, when it comes to like, you know, well, I mean, like, like that scene in a, in the kitchen, Right. That's going to be very specific and because it's non-emotional. So the way that it that those lines are delivered is like, you know, it's 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 conversational, but there's a point to it. Right. And unless that is like, you know, explicitly understood Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and researched to your point, you're you're probably not going to nail it. And so I think after the first maybe the first like uh, 20 pages or so, I just kind of like said f it you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna read it and the way that i think and uh you know because i had read it before i read Mm -hmm. it the night before again and uh read a little bit of it the morning of just to kind of like reacclimate my brain but you know there's going to be stuff that's that needs to be a conversation between the director and the actor and uh, for all of us and i think as fun as it was it was still like i knew when shit was wrong you know <laughs> it was obvious it like to me like I, I didn't even have to look at you like and honestly when i was when we were doing it i didn't have you up i, mm-hmm. I was not i didn't see you at any point um on purpose because i didn't want to see your reaction to shit um uh so 
but I could tell there were plenty of times where I would like, you know, I would like say a line or I would hear somebody else say a line and I'd be like, I know Wes hated that. <laughs> like, like that was bad <laughs> or whether you liked it or not. I was yeah. like, there were some moments where I was like, oh, I really hope you liked that. Cause I felt really good about that. You know, I think that's right. That felt right. Um, and there's plenty of times where it didn't, but that's, I love that. I think that that's a lot of fun that, um, hopefully it sounds like it gave you a lot of good information about stuff. And, and, and I mean, I would do it again in a second. I, th- I think it's, it's, it's fun work, you yeah. know, let's say, you know, it was, and there were some really beautiful moments. I want to say everyone started really hitting their stride about the midway, uh, through, um, there's a, the, the scene in the hospital and the scene later at a funeral. And it was, there was some really beautiful moments in there. I was like, wow, yeah, this is, this is working like y'all y'all are hearing it y'all are connecting and you said something a second ago that I was like that's so good because like you ultimately is you know and acting is reacting right you're reacting to the people in your scene so if someone feeds you a line that tonally is off you have to react to what they're doing you can't react to what you want the scene to be um yeah because now you're just creating a new level of you know uh disconnect um (laughs) and so it's a it's a weird thing like that's it's a feedback loop you know and you have to appreciate that everyone is playing in the same sandpit um you can't like force people into your sandbox you know yeah i mean i would i would um what do you think about this to me i feel like it's it's harder to act normal as an actor than it is to act emotional, you know, you could, because you're normally not angry. So when you get angry, it's like a new thing that comes up. The feeling is new every single time. The reaction is going to be something you don't think about. It just happens. Right. And so it's easier, at least, I don't know. I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like it's easier to actually feel sad, to feel mad, to feel worried because you're not normally in that state. But if you're normally in a calm conversational state, now I have to also react to something in a way that I'm wondering to somebody else, is that the way that this is supposed to go from someone else? And like all of these things go into your mind. And so you can't just not think and be normal. You know, it's like someone putting a camera in your face saying, don't change. It won't happen. Every, you know, you're going to change this moment. Somebody hits record always you know unless you're like you know a a really (laughs) i don't know like a really seasoned actor that's been in you know like like a lot of movies and has done this you know their whole life you know so it's just a it's it's just a harder thing yeah and you're i mean you're you're right like the everything in this doing a table read makes it look like every you, one emotion is one scene is directly connected to the next. There could be a lot of stuff that's happening in between those yeah. two scenes and in these two moments. And you don't have that sense of like Uta Hagen is really big on what you're coming from and what you're going to. And that informs what you're doing right now. Uh, doing a scene like, Hey, I just walked out of the bathroom is going to be completely different from doing a scene where I just walked out of a fist fight, right? Those are two completely, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to see either of those two, two moments before, but the actor needs to know what they're doing. Um, They need to know what their character is coming from, what's in their head right now. um, How long have they been wrestling with a thing? Um, And whenever you're doing a table read, 
you don't have any of those moments, um, let alone the conversations that you're talking about. Uh, and so it's, it is hard to be natural. It is hard to be honest because there's nothing natural about, um, squishing together, you know, 30 days of filming into a, a 90 minute sequence. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, there's all kinds of things that happen between, uh, e any of those moments. Great point. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, what are we doing for our century mark here, man? Yeah. Okay. So episode 200. So if you've listened to any other episodes, I'm sure you probably know that Interstellar is our favorite movie, both of us collectively. So we're going to cover it for a third time. Uh, and if you don't like it, sorry, but I think that we've, we probably come up with a, a few additional things to, to bring up and talk about through this, uh, this third revision here. So yeah, but if you haven't seen the movie, please pause it, go watch the film, um, because we're going to ruin a lot of stuff. Everything. Everything. I think, yeah, uh, that's always our, our goal, right? Is to bring fresh conversation to not rehash not only what other people have talked about, and that's why we, we do our own homework, but also even though this is our third episode on Interstellar, like it's going to be all mostly, I would say 90% uh, <laughs> new conversation. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. We'll try. Honesty, Todd. Um, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we'll 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 look at a few things. We'll touch on some of the story and writing, adding texture, ninety percent honesty, um, emotional storytelling, which is probably not what you think it is. And we'll look at some of the directing, moments of breathing, the scene with the emotional weight of the film, and other such stuff and things and stuff. All right, a quick synopsis of the film. A team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. It's directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Jonathan and Christopher Nolan, cinematography by Hoyt Van Hoytema. Uh, it's featuring Matthew McConaughey as Coop, Anne Hathaway as Brand, Jessica Chastain as Murph, Michael Caine as Dr. Brand, <laughs> David Gyasi as Romley, Timothy Chalamet as Tom, and Mackenzie Foy as young Murph. I need to fix this before I go. I'll keep it broken so you have to stay. After you kids came along, your mom, she said something to me I never quite understood. She said, now, we're just here to be memories for our kids. I think I now understand what she meant. You're a parent. You're the ghost of your children's future. You said ghosts didn't exist. That's right, Mark. Look at me. I can't be your ghost right now. I need to exist. Chose me, Murphy. Chose me. You saw it. You're the one who led me to him. That's exactly why you can't go. I figured out the message. One word. You know what it is? Stay. It says stay, Dad. You don't believe me. Look at the books. Look at this. It says stay. Why? You're not listening. It says stay. Coming back. When? 
for you. One for me. When I'm up there in hypersleep. Or, or traveling near the speed of light. Or near a black hole. Time's gonna change for me. There's gonna run more slowly. Now, when we get back, we're gonna compare. Time will run differently for us? Yeah. Maybe by the time I get back, we, we might even be the same age. You and me. What? Imagine that. I have no idea when you're coming back. No idea. Oh! Don't, don't, man, don't make me leave like this. Come on, Murph. Don't make me leave like this, Murph. Hey, I love you forever. You hear me? I love you forever. And I'm coming back. I'm coming back. The way you keep playing it. I to think, when the book falls off the shelf. <laughs> I wanted to keep it going until the music really blasts in, right? Because yeah. that's a punch, man. I mean, obviously, the, the score is one of the things that makes this just an absolutely phenomenal movie because it's emotionally communicating so much. And we covered a lot of that in the, the last episode. But I guess for you, one, is it still hold up? And then two, why is this so widely beloved as a science fiction film when there's none of the kind of weird sci-fi aspects to it right there's no aliens in this uh there's no others um you know it doesn't have any of the 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 gadgets so to speak um that make a lot of science fiction films pop out right this is all grounded stuff and yet it's it's people it's all people yeah what do you make of all that it's a great question that is the question. And I think after this watching, I kind of, I, I have an opinion on it. I didn't really have a full opinion on it before, but I think it's, it's two things for me. The first thing is that there is nothing in it that we don't currently have except for like TARS and case, right? Everything in it we is, is stuff that we kind of already have, right? Um, you know, they have a uh, fake gravity, right? Or created gravity by spinning. We can, we do that now on the, the ISS. Um, they have, you know, th well, they have cryo sleep, so they have that, right? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, most of the stuff that they have is stuff that we have today, right? It's, and they, they use cryo sleep to, to get us to where we need to go without them aging, right? I don't even think it works on that level. I think it's to save their resources. I feel like they're aging whenever they're well, in Well, Romley didn't Romley didn't age like 22 years. He he probably because he had when he had some stretches, he said about sleeping because she said, "Why didn't you sleep?" you know? And so he but said he I also had some said stretches. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to spend his life asleep. I know. 
Well, whatever. It doesn't okay. matter. Yeah, the fair. point yeah, yeah, yeah. the point being is that it's, we don't it have gets it us from A to B. It gets us from A to B <laughs> yeah. quickly. But most of the po- most of the stuff that they have is stuff that we already currently do have. So it feels grounded already, right? It feels like this could happen in the near future, you know? Um maybe not today, but in the near future this could could. So it feels like you know, and and we relate to to the the grandfather when he says, "Imagine six billion people." We talked about this last time. Six billion people, all of them want you know, trying to have it all. Well, that was a, that was you know a few years ago when there were six billion people on the on the planet. So it feels like we're getting to this stage where this could be the new reality, right? Mm. So it's, it's like a possibility. But also, I think I think that it it the whole point of it is he loves playing with time and that's great. And that's a massive conversation in the entire movie. But I think the underlying thing is something that we talked about last time, but kind of like came out to me a little bit more in Anne Hathaway's monologue, um, which has been the thing that like most people haven't liked about the film. And I didn't like about the film. I I feel like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that as of, of that, that I just didn't like, it didn't nail, it didn't feel real. But this time watching it, it felt real. This time watching it, it felt like this is the point of the entire movie, which is something that we all feel no matter how young we are, how old we are, how big of an asshole we are, how nice we are. It doesn't matter. The point being is that is this connection to people and the idea that no matter what, love is the thing that connects us through space and time. And and that is absolutely true. In the one line she delivers that changes everything and it even convinces Coop that she's that she's not completely wrong. She says, you love people who have died. Where's the utility in that? And he says, none. That alone for me made it so clear that the reason we do anything is for love, right? The reason we get out of bed is love of like, you know, you wake up and you you write, right? You love doing that. You love making films like it's it's out of a, uh, some kind of love, whether that's for another person and a thing, whatever. But you have a, this drive, you know, like like I love my children. I would go to the ends of the earth for them. You, you it's like everybody has someone or something that they that they love. And, and this the so we can all relate to that in some form or fashion. And when she says that it can transcend transcend time and space earlier in the film, she addresses that that the only thing that can that can move between time and space is gravity. And so, so she, we ground it in science first. We ground that statement in science first. If that makes sense, that makes sense that that could be possible. I mean, gravity is the thing that like, you know, it, it, it bends it, it bends time and space. And then after addressing that it grounded in science, you then ground it in humanity by talking about love. It's actually like brilliant. So you're already, you already agree with the science aspect and then you, the humanity aspect is brought in and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I agreed with that before. And I, I, yes, I, I agree with that too, without even knowing, without even, you know, I've, I've watched this movie 30 times, you know, and every time that moment has been like, oh, let's just get through this, you know, cause it's just like, it's so sappy and you know, whatever. But this time, and it, and the reason why I, I, I linked to it this time is because both of my kids watched it with me. Simon watched it with me for a second time, and Charlotte sat there and watched it with me the entire time. She'd never seen, she'd seen pieces, but not mm-hmm. the whole thing. And, you know, I had to stop it a few times to explain a few things, but for the most part, she just watched. And 
sitting there with those creatures, with both of them, you know, sitting next to me, eating popcorn, watching this and listening to, to Anne Hathaway talk about how love transcends space and time. They're on the other side. They're in another galaxy. And they're talking about, you know, his daughter, her father, who are billions of miles away, like they're right next to them. Like the reason they're there close to, to dying or why they're pushing through and, and doing these hard things and willing to die is because of these, these, these tiny, 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 tiny creatures billions of miles away. And the only connection is actual love. And it's, it's amazing. And so for me, all of a sudden her monologue made a lot of sense and, and gave the, the movie more of a human humanity aspect of it rather than science. And that's why we say it's a science movie, but it's not a science movie. You know, the other, there's a lot of other things that I could talk about, but before I do, I wanted to ask you a question. I wanted to ask you because this is the first time you've watched this, not in theater, unless you found a theater to watch it in. I did not. Um, and so what I wanted to ask you before I go any farther is how was that? Because you've, you've seen this probably, I don't know how many times, like seven, eight times, nine, just in a theater, nine, nine times. In theater. Okay. I was close. Yeah. Nine times in a theater. And this is the first time without a theater. So what, what did, what did you think? Did it hit? Did it not hit? Uh, yeah, it, it, it hit. It took me a little while. Um, it felt wrong. It felt, <laughs> <laughs> it just did not feel right. Um, and then there's, there's all kinds of aspects to home viewing that isn't going to be right. Right. It's not big enough. Um, it really, you know, plays so much better when you're in complete darkness and the screen is kind of wrapping around you. And there's also weird problems. So I watched it twice. Um, the first time I watched my Blu-ray, um, that I had ripped and put on my server and that worked fine. Uh, but the second time I was curious, uh, because I noticed that they kept the aspect ratio as close as they could to what his original intention was with, you know, the IMAX uh, release. And so I really appreciated that uh, we were popping in and out of like widescreen format versus full frame format as it, and it seemed to be aiming at like immersion for the, the full frame, you know, into the environment or versus kind of emotional and some of the practical stuff that he had to shoot on more of the traditional uh, widescreen format. But then the, the, so I was curious if that was going to be the same thing for the streaming or, or if that was maybe just for Blu-ray. And so I watched it on streaming and it was just not great just because it's, uh, there's degradation of the encoding. Um, and then a few times, like, I guess the bit rate dropped out. And so it went from like HD down to, I don't even know. SD? It, not even like below oh, SD. I, yeah. It was like, I think that's Anne Hathaway on screen right now. Like it was oh my God. bad, bad. Um, and, and then there's like pausing there, you know, uh, I did my best to never pause just to keep that momentum and stay in it. Uh, but there's like, I think once the last night when I watched it where I, I paused to, grab a snack basically i was like uh I, yeah and so i'd made a big batch of popcorn i was ready to get into it and then like my neighbor starts blasting like uh edm uh through the wall <laughs> oh my god and so i had to like reposition myself 
further away from the wall and like and it actually helped because i basically put my face about three feet in front of the screen um and it kind of had a nice immersive effect and so i i tried to stay there for as much as i could for the movie before and like started giving me physical ailments <laughs> but, <laughs> but i would say overall it wasn't bad like it was it was still a, and the story still hits in all the places you want it to hit but there's absolutely nothing that compares to watching this, you know, on a big screen. And I will now that I've kind of broken that barrier, I might watch this every one or two years, um, trying to keep that same headspace that, you know, I got out of watching it in a theater. Uh, but this might be the movie that says Wes needs to get like a projector and set up like a projection. Yeah. Um, that feels like the only true way to do this movie proper justice. Um, yeah. And so I might look into doing that within the next one or two years, uh, whenever I, I just can't possibly go another day, <laughs> and, Do it. but Do it. overall, man, yeah, it was still phenomenal. Like all the, you know, Wessisms aside, <laughs> <laughs> that's hey, no, I wouldn't call it that. I would, you know, you, you, it's, it's your favorite movie. You've, ex you love the way to experience it that the, that the director intended, the writer intended, and so experiencing that any other way feels feels cheapened. I, yeah. I totally get that. That's not a Wessism. That's understandable. And it was nice, too, I guess, to finally sit and take notes properly. The, it was crazy during episode 100 that we just happened to have a screening pop up. Yeah. Like the week of. And I got to go and sit and watch that right before doing the episode after having not being able to see it, you know, for three years or whatever it was. It was just really weird, coincidental, you know, like Nolan smiled down upon me kind of timing. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan is in like God. Yeah. I love it. Uh, it was his birthday yesterday, by the way. Was it? Yeah. Well, happy birthday, sir. 52. Yeah. Happy birthday. Chris. And so being able to, but even then I was, you know, in a, in a theater and uh, only sparingly writing notes. I was really last time I was really just trying to watch the movie. And if a thought hit me, I would make a script, you know, scratch on the, on the note. This time I was able to actually watch it one time just to enjoy it and then watch it again this morning. Um, I had to get up early to, to watch it this morning before the screening and actually sit and take notes. And so that was kind of fun to be able to actually start trying to see what I actually see for the first time on a more yeah. regular level uh, because the first time our first episode on this was all the thoughts that I had been thinking and ruminating on. Um, the second time was, Oh, here's an idea here and there. But this time I was like, okay, what are the other things that I've never really thought about um, just on a, you know, scene by scene basis or what have you. So that was kind of fun too, to, to treat this the way I treat all of our other films um, was yeah. a nice little treat. <laughs> There's also like this interesting air. Well, it's good. Let me just say that I'm glad. I'm glad that it didn't like affect it so much that like, no, now it's not my favorite not movie. My favorite that's word, that's yeah. good. That's good. That was a real danger. <laughs> uh, I'm, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. I know you. But, you know, I was thinking about it, watching it of like, there's, there's, there's a different, there, there's this feeling that you get in this, in this movie of, of, I know the world is dying, but really I'm with this family, mm. right? I'm not thinking about the millions of other families. And I think I'm, I'm like with this family. And, and while that becomes a, a conversation with Dr. Mann on his planet 
And Dr. Mann says that brilliant thing, which is, which is, you know, we can care very deeply for those in that we can see, but our, that, that line of, of, of care rarely extends beyond our line of sight, right? That, that comes up. And so that's, that's an actual thing, but we feel, I feel like, because there's not a whole lot of like, there's not a whole lot of super wides of just cornfields or mm. mountains or of the earth, right? It's all like every shot has only in it what Nolan wants you to focus on. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no other superfluous, oh, we're going to get a wide so we can get this and that and it can feel big. No. And it's so crazy because it's such a big movie. And yet the only thing you see is the stuff he wants you to see that, that he wants you to focus on. That's so true. I was thinking about this shot as we're driving away from the house, that scene that I played uh, with between Murph and, and, and Coop, Coop and he's driving away and there's that shot of the camera on the side of the truck and he chose to go full frame IMAX on that shot. And it's an emotional moment. And it's he made it bigger than life when we're just looking at a truck and a, and a house on a farm. Yeah. Yeah. But the the and the importance of that shot is obviously he's driving away. Yeah. Right. We have the ship he's in, which is the truck driving away from the thing he loves, mm. which is the house. And the house is going to get smaller. So I want that to be very important. But that's it. It's like it's just everything that he. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that there's a mastery in this that Hoyt did as well, obviously. Um, and I'm sure that Hoyt and, and, and Chris, Christopher worked so closely together and they just get each other. Right. I mean, he's a master. Yeah. I, it's worth pointing out. This was their first time working together. That's amazing. This was originally supposed to be Wally Pfister, but Pfister was yes. off making his directorial debut. And so Nolan yes. found Hoyt and they've been working together ever since because yeah, they did Dunkirk and now they're doing Oppenheimer. Well, um, obviously they work well together, you know, yeah. like Hoyt gets it, Hoyt yeah. gets it. But I'll bet a lot of that was not just, you know, was not just Hoyt. It was, it was Chris, Christopher saying, no, you know, I want like, I don't want to see this over here. I don't want to see that over there. This is all we, this is all I want here in this shot. This is all I want in this shot. Mm -hmm. So it just made, it was masterclass in forcing, not just perspective, but in attitude towards, towards the emotion of, of what's happening or, or what he wants you to feel. It like makes you feel it because you can't, I can't be scared for the entire world. I can't be imagine a billion dollars. It's impossible. You don't know what it looks like. There's no way you can imagine a million people. It's impossible. Imagine four people. Now, those four people, out of those four people, one of those people needs to save the world. Not the world. The other three. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you have an emotional story that has weight behind it that you can understand. Now, if you show a city in, in Asia and then, and then New York and then Chicago, like it's too much. I can't grab that, grab, grapple with that, but I can imagine three people dying of suffocation. Right. And so it's just, it was amazing how like I I understood it a little bit clearer through the eyes of a, of a, a DP this time as opposed to last time. Cause I couldn't answer that question before. Yeah. I mean, I could, but I would bullshit a little bit. Honestly, I would just be like, whatever. But now I, I, I totally got it. So anyway, 
That's really cool. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, I'll I'll dip into a few things that I kind of you know thought was interesting along the way. For one, the getting into some of the writing and storytelling. There's that moment towards the beginning when they find the coordinates um, and they're about to go out, right? And she's wanting Murph is wanting to go along for the ride, and he's like, "I can't take you." She's like, "You don't know what you're going to find at these coordinates," and he's like, "That's why I can't take you." And it's a great scene because obviously she sneaks in anyway, right? And it reveals a lot. For one, he doesn't want her to go because he's a responsible parent, right? That's that's what you do as a responsible dad. And yet she's relentless, right? She's an adventurer herself. She's an explorer. That's what he keeps saying over and over throughout the film. Humankind, humanity, we're explorers. We're explorers, Romley. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I love it because... That for one, she's just like her dad, but this, that little moment could have been, he just says, yeah, hop in, let's go. Right. Uh, and that would have communicated one thing, but it doesn't add the texture and dimension that we really want out of a, out of a movie. Instead, this is kind of an easy, simple way to add character depth. For one, he tells her no, and she re uh, bucks it, right? She does what she wants to do anyway. Um, and that sets up who she is as a, as a, you know, daughter and their relationship because he also lets it go. <laughs> He's like, all right, you know what? Here we go. Um, and it's, it's a lot more satisfying because each one of those, uh, that whole little tiny 30 second sequence uh, is rooted in their personalities and it's revealing and adding depth and texture to who they are as well as texture to the story itself. Right. It's always going to be more interesting to an audience for characters to have strong opinions, strong ideas, strong, uh, you know, everything that they want to do is right there out in the open, not very mushy, right? You want characters who know what they want and they're advocating for a thing. They have a worldview, they have a perspective. Um, and that's just going to make it for uh, a better uh, viewing experience to engage with those kinds of characters. And that is all reflected in that really what 20, 30 second sequence. Hey, can I say something about Please. that too? I love you brought that up because also the editing of that is really interesting. So Nolan loves playing with time, right? And loves playing with time in ways that you don't even think about. He cuts from, from uh, Coop throwing something in the truck and saying no to Coop inside. We're, there's no say like yelling for Murph, Murph, I'm leaving whatever. Tell grandpa, you know, I'll be back in a couple hours. There is no, there's no buffer, right? It's just, they're outside at the truck. He, Coop is outside at the truck with Murph and now he's inside and Murph is gone. You don't think anything about how much time has passed. Maybe it was three minutes. Maybe it was 10 minutes. Maybe it was 20 minutes. Maybe it was an hour. No idea, but it doesn't even matter. You don't, you don't think about it. And then he gets in the car and we don't know where Murph is. We just assume that Murph is inside because he yells to Murph. Yeah, right. So he thinks Murph is inside. So we think Murph is inside. So it's a shock when she's actually in the truck. But there is no like, okay, I'm going to, we're going to cut to them all, both coming into the house. So now the, the, he doesn't care about the, the, the viewer following him, yeah. the audience following him. Exactly. And yes. with that, let's actually jump right into emotional storytelling because that's very much in line with this whole idea. And when I'm talking about emotional storytelling, I'm not talking about, you know, people crying on screen or big dramatic things. I'm talking more about the visceral experience of the uh, of watching a scene or watching a moment or watching a sequence. The audience is engaging on an emotional level 
not on a calculated level. There's things that happen throughout this film when you might walk out and say, well, wait a second. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I did a little bit of that in our last, last episode. Um, But we can kind of walk through a few of these things that emotional logic plays very, very well. Whereas the kind of mathematical lower reasoning base or instincts, whenever you sit back and say, uh, that it doesn't work well at all. So we can talk about like the black hole, um, the gravity equation. It's kind of this MacGuffin, right? Uh, MacGuffin is kind of just this thing. It could be uh, a, a plot device that needs to happen, or it could be an item um, that characters are after, uh, like the Maltese Falcon, um, this old Bogart movie, Humphrey Bogart film is all about going after this thing or any Indiana Jones movie is always about going after just this thing. Indiana. It's just a thing. It doesn't matter. You could call it uh, the, the bag of the bag of boobs. Like we got to go get the bag of boobs. <laughs> like it doesn't really matter what it is. It's yes, just it a thing that is driving the characters to make the decisions that they're making. And so for, for us, like we're trying to solve this gravity equation, right? We understand what it is, why we need it. Um, and so in that way, it's kind of a MacGuffin, uh, but not probably the perfect definition of one. But the the reason I call it one is that the black hole has all the answers, right? But it's impossible. We can't get in there to get all the answers. We never know exactly what the equation is or what the real information is going to be. Like they just kind of throw out, you know, these scientific terms, the the quantum equation and quantum data. Yeah. And it's like, we, we don't really know what that stuff is. Uh, we don't really need to, right. They just need to reiterate what we need. So we understand why it gets solved. We need to solve gravity. We don't have enough information for gravity. How do we get that? We need to see inside a black hole uh, in order to solve this equation. That's going to save everybody. And they just do this like a thousand times throughout the film. Like they are just hammering this uh, problem and impossible solution, which is why we understand once he gets into the black hole, why this ultimately solves the problem. We never know how they're going to use that equation, right? We don't know that they're going to create a a time space bubble. That's going to lift off their centrifugal island thing right the the cooper station we don't know any of that it doesn't matter emotionally we understand that the problem is solved because the experience is taking us on this ride and so we're able to go there with them uh it never becomes a stick you know a sticking point to enjoying the film um because nolan is constantly kind of pushing the thread right where you want to be in that same way a lot of people get frustrated with the whole uh, reveal scene uh, in the office right and the cooper is like well what are you trying to do and they just fly open a door that's a this trap wall and suddenly you see you see that you're in a silo this is a rocket silo um and the 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 logic on there is like wait what he couldn't hear all the pounding and banging or whatever there's an emotional element to this which is the experience of sitting in there and identifying with Cooper's perspective, his worries, his thoughts, all these other things are on something else. He isn't thinking about what is this building? He's thinking about, am I safe? Is my daughter safe? Who are these people? I know you, but you're acting really effing weird, man. Um, You know, there's all these emotional elements that are more important to him that it doesn't matter that he's sitting in a rocket silo. Obviously it was night when they pulled up. There's all these, you know, directing decisions that make actual sense 
to the story, but, you know, could confound, uh, you know, someone kind of removing themselves and looking at it. There's an emotional element where we don't question it because the director never gives you a reason to question it. And that's the emotional element that I'm talking about. He's pushing you through an experience so that it doesn't matter that there's some mechanical issues with it. Uh, you, you know, it's the the classic thing, you know, you say a lot, uh, which is to remind us, where does the T-Rex the come from? Screen left. <laughs> like yeah. we're emotionally engaged in something. And therefore, it doesn't always matter if you know what buttons you're trying to push in order to keep the audience engaged in what you're showing them. This is the whole magician's redirection, right? You're not thinking about this because I'm showing you this. Mm -hmm. And now whenever it's convenient to me as the magician, I will reveal uh, the rabbit in the boot or whatever he does. Yeah. And as long as as long as things line up, right, as long as like so a good example um, that I can think of is that would have taken me out of out of this is when uh, Murph tells Brand that her dad has passed and then says, says, did you know you knew? Did my father know um, and delivers that while they're on man's planet? We see her deliver that while they're flying away. We hear it, you know, we like mm. we see her on the screen and they're flying away. What would have really taken me out and I really paid attention this time was, is that the same video that we're seeing when they get it on man's planet? And it is, it is. I like, I really, this time I was like, and I didn't notice before I, you know, like I, I just didn't pay too much attention before, but this time I, I thought, is this the same delivery? Is her inflection the same? And it is. And that's the kind of stuff. It's like those little things that it could have been, oh, they pulled that video from another take. Mm -hmm. And in that take, she says this word with a different inflection, you know, uh, and and then if someone who pays attention like you or I could maybe notice that and that completely takes you out because then you're seeing the filmmaking process yeah. instead of instead of like just being in the emotional moment, because that's a very emotional moment, too. And so if you're noticing something is off or like, oh, there was a cup on this side of the table. And now when we change angles, the cup is on that side of the table. I just feel like everything was so perfect. Were there any moments in it that you that have stood out to you of, as like as that as, oh, they missed that this was over here or that was over there? You know, like the, the mm. Starbucks cup in uh, <laughs> Game of Thrones kind of thing. Yeah, nothing has hit me on that level, I think. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think so. Me either. But yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. Uh, okay. And there's things that he's doing where he's progressing a sequence really, really fast um, that I'm able to keep up with. But it still never feels out of sequence. It just feels like we're jump cutting through time, not necessarily uh, through a scene. So one thing to that point uh, that I wanted to also bring up was on man. I love. So he plays with time a lot. We already addressed that of him going from from the truck to inside the house. He also does it again on Man's Planet, mm -hmm. um, and it's in or not on Man's Planet on Miller's Planet, and it's really interesting in that point. And my kids pointed it out too, which was they said seven years per hour. They weren't there for even an hour, and yet twenty two years passed. Obviously, they got. I think they kind of got the the math wrong initially, you know, but. Even if they hadn't, that would have meant they had to be there for three hours. And so does does Nolan just skip that time and they were actually there for three hours? Or did they get the math completely wrong and it was really 22 years in 10 minutes? Right. I, no, don't, I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, the whole water planet 
does is same thing. Like there's a lot of emotional storytelling that he's pushing you through so that you're not as caught up in some of the more clockwork elements. Um, So like before they get down on the planet, they didn't do any of the math. Right. And if this were a real expedition, they're not going to rush down. It's like, Hey, right now we're not losing time by taking a week, a month, right. To sit and observe the planet. What can we figure out just from sitting here instead of investing, you know, a year just going, even if you were to do it that quick, right. You would still lose a year. Well, it would be better to lose a month making observations and making a measured approach, right? That's how you would do that in a, in a a, send a probe or something like that. Right. They didn't do the math, didn't figure out the the exact time dilation, not just uh, what the worst case scenario would be, but also by figuring out how long is she, if there is time dilation happening, how long has Miller actually been down there? Yeah. Right. That would have been the first thing that they would have realized like, okay, well, if we're experiencing that, Oh man, well, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. They didn't recon the planet, all that stuff. Right. Instead, it's a much better emotional experience and, and viewer experience for them to just jump into the action. Let's go down there. Let's see what's what. Let's get the data. Let's get in. Let's get out. Right. And he's pushing you through that through the dialogue, um, through the little verbal wrestling match that they're making um, with Doyle um, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out. And so he's he's doing that magician thing where he's making you focus on something over here when you think scientifically about it and you're like, that was dumb. Well, <laughs> this is a movie. Like we're trying to yeah. emotionally engage our audience uh, and put them on an adventure. And this is how you do that uh, in that same way, right? They get down there. They don't notice the waves on the way down um, or the giant one that's directly behind them. Right. Because, again, this is a visual experience. This is an emotional experience. The reason they don't notice that is because it's not time for them to notice that. You know, oh, there's, there's oh, a- that's such a can we can we <laughs> save that? Save that soundbite. Yeah, that's perfect. That that makes me that's another that's another uh, 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 screen left moment. Absolutely. Because the visual emotional experience is way more important than dotting every I. Yeah. We want people to feel what it's like and to feel this rush and to, and to feel this, you know, sense of discovery that they're going through. Um, it, it makes all perfect emotional ex- uh, uh, sense, even if it doesn't make perfect mathematical sense. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's not time for them to notice. Holy <laughs> shit, dude. That was, it's so that was epic. But epic. I, yeah, I, that's always rubbed me wrong. The whole seven years, 23 years calculation. I don't know. I would be curious what Nolan and uh, the Nolan's perspective is on that. If it's because if it's going to take 40 to 45 minutes to drain the, the, the engine and yet three years is what it should take in order to get them. It's not a three year journey or a three hour journey from landing because he does not take his time getting down there. Right. He yeah. flies down there, which is emotionally like why they never see the waves or really don't see what's coming for them. Um, and they set their own trap in that way. Yeah. Uh, but getting out, you know, probably doesn't take two hours or maybe it did and they just didn't express it. I don't know. That's probably an extra line or two of dialogue that could have smoothed that over. Um, uh, no, I, I'm okay with it. I just, yeah. I, li- I, I like it. I like the, where the, where the, what? What happened? Where are we? You know, kind of thing. You're constantly being tested. Yeah. Are you paying attention? Because yeah. she says it though, but she says whenever he's like, how much is this going to cost us? And she says decades. 
Yeah. Right. So there's some level of our calculation was wrong somehow or another. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, it's all more importantly, it works on an emotional level for the viewer in the moment, um, which is what you want in a movie experience. Um, Yeah. The same thing, emotional storytelling. How did they program the data into the watch? Never remotely clear how that works. Uh, We just know that they're doing something right because the mechanics don't matter. The emotional result is that we understand he sent a message across time to his daughter and she got the message. That's it. That's all we need to know. And we see it reflected emotionally in both of them. Um, And then, of course, it's verbally echoed through TARS where he's like, I think it worked. How do you know? Because the bulk beams, and I still love that. I love that they call them the bulk beings. I know, um, me too. That's such a cool name. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the collapsing the Tesseract. Um, and that's a, a whole other experience. Um, yeah, so emotional storytelling counts for a lot uh, whenever you're trying to tell uh, a mechanically difficult story. Instead, don't focus on the mechanics. Focus on the impact of what you're doing to your viewer. It's much easier to add mechanics. Yeah than it is to add the emotion. The emotion comes needs to come first. Good point. Yes. You can add mechanics with, with, Oh, let's, let's re let's do another take. I need to move this over or, uh, let's, let's, you know, do a couple more takes with this attitude or whatever, but mm-hmm. emotion, you know, is different. Yeah. Yeah. 90% honesty. Um, that's really nice because it's being used the entire film. Like not just whenever he iterates it and everything between him and brand, the entire movie I think is predicated on uh, everyone maintaining a 90% honesty policy Uh, because what does Tar say, right? I've found that it's not good uh, to when dealing with emotional human beings to be a hundred percent honest all the time. It's not going to get the results that you want. And so everyone's doing that. The government's doing that right with their propaganda, right? That we never landed on the moon. Yeah. Right. The government's trying to manipulate the truth to get a result that they want, which is to make us caretakers um, needing to survive here on Earth, uh, not fantasize about leaving the planet. Instead, Murph is bucking that. Right. We're explorers um, is his line of reasoning and and thought. Professor Brand, right, uh, is doing the same thing. He's lying about plan A in order to achieve plan B, just like the, the textbook propaganda. And he even says it's nice. It's kind of this covert thing that he says where he and, and Murph are sitting and looking at the, the workers building stuff. He's like, every rivet could have been a bullet. Mm-hmm. We've done well. Yeah. Because his goal is to minimize suffering while ensuring survival of humanity. Like, what good is it if everyone knows the truth, if you're just going to grab guns and kill each other for resources? That's not a good way for everyone to go out. It's much better to roll the dice, so to speak, and to feather it out as long as you can to prevent like violence or whatever else. But Murph is doing the same thing too. And it's interesting because her future husband, you know, uh, Topher Grace, I don't think we logged his name, but uh, the doctor says, don't people have a right to know? And she says, it'll only cause panic. But isn't that exact? And he asked point blank, isn't that exactly what Professor Brand was doing? And she said, Brand gave up on us. I'm not. And so the right thing and the wrong thing look a lot alike to everyone else, right? But to the people who are making those decisions, they look like wildly different decisions, even though the results on the outside looks the same. 90% truth. I mean, even Coop is being 90% truthful with Murph. Not tell, not telling her why he's leaving, 
mm-hmm. you know, which was really difficult because it messed up her whole life up until the point where, where she got the watch, right? The whole time she thought he left her. So, but he could, what is he going to tell, you know, a 10 year, he, he, he addresses it. What are you going to tell a 10 year old that you left to save the world? Cause the world's ending. Like, no, you're not going to do that. So yeah. So good. Yeah. And then of course, Coop also, you know, the, the whole setup and payoff for that line is really rooted in the, uh, the, the exit, not telling Amelia about his plan to drop into the black hole. We agreed Amelia 90. 90- Oh God, (laughs) I know you can't even say it. You can't even say it. Oh my God. And you can't say it, not just because of the delivery, which is freaking perfect, freaking perfect, but also, uh, because of the music. It just is, it's, oh, this score, I can't, like, I can't imagine another I mean, tell me any movie you think could rival this score. Like, really, any. And and I'm sitting here, and I, I was watching it again, and I was wondering, why? Why is it? We talked about, you know, in the other episodes, how, you know, him using an organ is very important, because an organ has, you need to push air through that instrument in order for it to make sound. It's a human, there's a human element to that. We've talked about that. But also... I think it's it's a simple just like the movie the premise of the movie is very simple. A lot of crazy things happen, but it's very simple. It's I love you. I will go to the ends of the universe for you. That's it. That's the whole that's the whole thing. And I think that the score really emphasizes that because it's very simple at its core. I mean, it, you know, if you sit down and you watch people play it, it's very complex to play. But at its heart, it's the main theme, which I guess is what is it? Cornfield? I I can't remember. Is four notes it's like that's it you know and it's it's he builds on that and builds on it and it's placed perfectly you know that moment is placed so perfectly the moment when they where they catch uh endurance from you know and and the docking scene is placed perfectly like uh the scene where he leaves murph uh at the beginning they're placed absolutely perfectly but at their core they're very simple uh, all of the themes are very simple. I've listened to the soundtrack probably, I don't know, a hundred times just listening to the soundtrack yeah. on, on Apple music. And, and, um, it's incredible. It's actually very inspiring because it makes you realize that it do, things don't need to be so complicated. And in fact, maybe the more complicated they are, the less people can really identify with them because, you know, I don't know. I understand everything that's going on in the score. I know what he's doing. I know where things are going. I understand why I feel a certain way when he hits a certain note. I get that. And yet I don't think about it at all because I feel it and I'm able to feel it because I don't have to think about it. Yeah. But yeah, that moment is so good. Anyway, sorry, 90%. So good. Yeah. So, and I mean, same thing, uh, 90% is, uh, I mean, this might be inverted actually, 10%. Uh, honesty when it comes to Dr. Mann. Um, and you mm. mentioned earlier uh, that man is the, living in this philosophy where humanity hasn't evolved past the selfish line of sight, right? Because, but he, he, he knows that and he says that because he himself knows that he hasn't himself passed that line of sight because he's right. still living selfishly. He still wants to survive. Um, and he was not willing to do what it was, what was necessary to ensure humanity's survival 
by not being a total dick. Mm-hmm. And what's so great to me about that is how it's also inverted through Coop because he's put to it pretty point blank when they make the decision to go see the ice planet uh, to see Dr. Man when Brand tells him tells Coop point blank you might have to choose between seeing your kids again and the future mm-hmm. of the human race. I hope you'll be as objective as you are now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, I'm yes. sure you will. She said, oh, I'm sure you'll be just as objective. Um, and it's so good because he doesn't choose a plan. A he doesn't choose plan B. Uh, he chose plan C, uh, which kind of underscores your, your comment you just made about he's willing to go to the end of the universe. Like he chose to not see his kids, but to save them and humanity. That's really cool. It's proving the thesis that man has completely wrong, um, that you can actually, uh, choose beyond your line of sight while also using and utilizing love, right? The whole point Mm -hmm. of this film to do so. Yeah. Yeah, it, like I love that. That's a great, that's a great point. Plan <laughs> C, nicely done, nice. Um, and so uh, there's some nice foreshadowing that I noticed that happens. Um, there's that flat tire right uh, at the beginning of the film where they chase the drone uh, with the flat tire, and it and it nearly chases them off a cliff, right? Trying to trying to go and uh, grab this drone, and I feel like that's like this. Ad- a ride this roller coaster that's an early taste of that final sequence um, chasing the docking station as well as falling into the black hole here they didn't go off the cliff but in the in the final sequence they do i mean it's light it's not like this big hard you know punch in the face like this is what we're gonna do later uh but there's some light callbacks to it both the the, the precipice uh but also there's where Coop calls Tom Turbo. Slow down, Turbo. Same thing that he says to Tars towards the end, right? Um, Calm down or slow down, Turbo. Uh, Safety first. And then, of course, this time, what's interesting in the beginning of the film, he tears apart the the drone, right, for utility. Uh, But at the end of the film, he saves Tars. He saves the robot for, seems like, companionship. There's no, there was no utility to saving Tars. Like, they already got all the data. They've saved humankind. What else does he need him for? Like he doesn't plan on at that point leaving Earth or leaving Cooper Station. Cooper Station. Yeah, he's just. I just miss my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's great. Nice little arc. Um, yeah, but we do too. We do too. Like we're th- we as a as an audience are thinking, oh, but, but what about Tars? You're safe, but what about Tars? So when we see him, we have the same reaction that Cooper has, which is, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Y'all went through so much together. Y'all went through a Tesseract together, man. Yeah. And then the other little bit of foreshadowing uh, was at the beginning of the film when uh, his dad, Coop's dad, is telling him, hey, go go see that Miss Henley um, or Hanley, whatever her name is. Mm-hmm. She, she's attractive, man. Y'all should start pumping out babies. Time to yeah. start pulling your weight, repopulating the earth, um, old man. And that's great, right? All of that, all, that whole sentence is great because... For one, at the end of the film, he goes after Brand, right, in order to start repopulating a new planet, as well as he is now an old man. He's 124 years old. 120, yeah. Um, And I also love that whole story with Coop and Brand, because this story is both about love, but not romantic love. Yeah. Uh, It's something else. And yet, Coop and Brand, you do get the sense that they're in love. Yet there's no kiss. There's no overt emotional play. 
Um, it's just something that you feel. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, directing, uh, just a few notes on this. Um, I love that there's a lot of moments of breathing. I could see a studio talking to Nolan saying, uh, Warner brothers saying like, bro, we're at two fifty right now. We're almost at three hours. Come on, bro. You can trim 20 minutes. Let's get this down to two, two and a half. Just a, a, a speedy two and a half, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> a um, lean. <laughs> but he doesn't, right? He he really finds these moments to let the, the sequence breathe or the moments breathe. Like there's that moment whenever uh, I think you talked about in the last episode where there's these hard cuts um, and we're just suddenly there, right? Uh, and for us, it's John Lithgow, uh, the dad, uh, grandpa on the farm saying, Oh, well, or, or maybe it's, I forget who it is. If professor brand, whoever, but they're saying, Oh, in two years, they'll be coming up on Saturn. Boom. Cut Saturn. Professor brand. Yeah. And we just sit there. We just drift in space for a hot second, just sitting there and it's selling everything the the selling the world building, right? The scale and just, it's a visual treat of course. Um, but it also creates the space that we need for two years to have passed. You can't just say uh, two years and then suddenly we're there. That's It's not that kind of movie at this point. <laughs> we'll yeah. have those moments, but it's always going to be in relationship to what the characters are experiencing. And that moment in Saturn is giving us a breathing room to feel the passage of time. And as he plays video, whatever. And there's also another moment that we take eight minutes to do something that I think the studio would have been we need this in two minutes, cut off six minutes here. It, it'll happen, which is the docking sequence. We take eight minutes, roughly, you know, you could probably add on another minute or two, depending on when you say that sequence begins. Uh, by my count, it's when Dr. Mann begins pulling into the docking sequence. And that's at about two Oh three and a half. And the explosion doesn't happen for three minutes, like uh, two and a half, almost three minutes. Uh, whenever it detonates, right? The module, and I love this moment. I've, I wrote a note expecting us to do Interstellar 3 back in November of 2020. I made it, I was looking through my notes and I just ran a search on Interstellar 3 and it pulled up an old note that I made in my, my uh, notepad um, that was saying, it looks like the spaceship is built like a clock. There are 12 distinct notches or hubs and the center hub is connected by one big hall or band, but the the 12 hubs. And this time I was like, okay, well, if, if past West saw that, I wonder if the hub that explodes is going to be at the 11 o'clock. And that's what it looks like to me. It looks like the, the one that detonates with man is right about 11 o'clock, the 11th hour, right? This is humanity's last hour to, to save everything. And so it feels like just a little subtle thing. Uh, reference to time once again Nolan doing his thing with time um, and I thought that was interesting but I love that he totally took uh, an eight minute sequence in order to build it both you know just hanging out with Dr. Man as he's futzing about with the with all the stuff you could have cut out a good 90 seconds there and just said oh 30 seconds of him eh, 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 boom explode no we're gonna live in this for a while and let it develop let the music do its thing, give it time so that, you know, we're floating, we're giving uh coop and brand a moment to kind of 
come up and then regress, right? There, no, we need to get away. You need time to let all this stuff develop or else it's just too quick. Um, it feels fake. It feels false. I think that's the thing I've been taking away a lot for the past 50 episodes that we've been doing is letting scenes develop. Just because there's a line on the page, just, just because there's two sentences doesn't mean they need to come back to back. Sometimes there's a breath that happens between one word and the next let things develop and watching Nolan, the master letting things develop is really educational for me. But I also noticed in the scene, I think for the first time that I noticed this brand blacks out. I don't remember oh, yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I remember hearing Coop give the direction like, Hey, if I black out, take control. But I didn't connect that to what brand was doing. Um, or at least I don't, I mean, it's been five years since I've seen this or however long. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. And why uh, wouldn't she? She was not a pilot. She's, not, she's pilot. not used to that, you know, but Coop is. So that's why he doesn't pass out. Good point. He's used to it. I didn't yeah. make that connection, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. I thought yeah. of it more in terms of he's so focused, but it is the training. It's absolutely the training. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be the focus too. I don't know. <laughs> um, Man's Ice Planet, as far as directing goes, I probably could have used a few more minutes or at least one or two sentences explaining how the ice planet is rotating around gargantua they they touch on it here and there i probably could have just used one or two more sentences uh or a better visual of their solar system that they're operating in um or in, in a line just saying hey we need to be careful how we rotate around uh, the, this planet so that we don't accidentally slip into gargantua's pool because uh, then we'll be screwed because they make that switch and it works because it's emotional storytelling, uh, but they make that switch between saving the docking station and then we oh. go right into the Gargantua pool. And that just is like, wait, I thought we moved away from Gargantua. Uh, up until this viewing, I've been always been confused about how quickly we move into that pool. And I think just a single sentence and maybe a snapshot of uh, a close up of looking at what the planet is doing. But we never really hold on any of those shots long enough for it to register uh, on on the level that I needed personally. Mm -hmm. But as always, I I think this will be the third time I've mentioned this and I won't belabor it. I love, love, love the moments of disorientation in here. Um, he does it a handful of times, especially around ejecting out of the uh, the, the ranger as he's falling into the, the black hole, right? We've Several times, right? We start on black and we're seeing like the frame of something. And it's like, oh, that's his helmet. Oh, that's his face. <laughs> like, and then when we fall into the the Tesseract, it's so weird and it's so beautiful and it's so disorienting. It's just the great WTF that you're waiting for in a Nolan film. Um, yeah. And he, he takes, you know, 220 to get to it, like 215 uh, before he puts you into a WTF moment. Uh, and it's well worth the wait, I think. Last note is the emotional weight of the film is in that sequence we played, Stay. He's trying to say goodbye to Murph. She's not having it right. And what blew me away watching it this time and really, you know, uh, letting it wash over me was Mackenzie Foy is freaking incredible she's in the scene and she's carrying the scene with matthew mcconaughey <laughs> yeah way to go to like you know still the scene she is absolutely carrying the weight of the scene which this scene is carrying the weight of the entire movie 
if you don't care about this moment, you're not going to care about the rest of the film because it's driving everything that Coop is doing. And so it's resting on her to sell it. Now, just to step back for a second and think about this, they cast someone who's whatever, 10, 12 years old, who's not only an incredible actor, but also visually looks enough a lot like uh, Jessica Chastain. Like, you're, I don't know what the hell uh, kind of magic that they just <laughs> hit on uh, to make that work because that blows my mind as, you know, as a, as a filmmaker to be like, yeah, we need someone because it can't be something she really does have to look a lot like her because we're going to be cutting back to her throughout the entire film. And especially throughout the core, you know, moment in the Tesseract, we're looking at her. We need to be thinking Jessica Chastain and Mackenzie Foy are the same person and it's spot on. And so to then find that person who can sit in the scene with McConaughey and like punch his lights out and give him everything. Now he's McConaughey. He's going to, he's going to give you everything he's got, but I guarantee she made that scene so much easier. (laughs) my god uh yeah that scene is resting this movie i would argue is resting on the shoulders of Mackenzie foy and i will be blown away it's one thing to find a timothy chalamet who doesn't have to do anything he's just an incredible actor we don't need anything from him and i would argue we don't really get anything from him like there's a few scenes where he's like he's giving you some juice but you know, so what? Like, we don't need him to to pull his weight here because um, he doesn't have a lot of weight to pull in the first place. She does. And she pays it off uh, wildly. I am just floored and I cannot wait to see what else. She's someone to keep your eye on. Um, she's amazing. Yeah, totally agree. And I love as uh, as a as a final touch to that sequence. He's driving away. And what does he do? We cut to the inside of the truck. He checks he the blanket. Left. Yeah. And and she's not there. She didn't mm-hmm. stow away again. And you feel that final heartbreak. Oh. And 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 then to just twist the knife a little bit, she runs out after him and <sighs> and her, and her grandfather catches her. It's the it's the constant push and pull that we give each other, honestly, right? You know, it's it's like I want, you know, I want this thing. Like, I don't want you to leave. And I, so I'm mad at you, but I really don't want you to leave. And I want you to know that I love you, but it's too late to tell you you've already left. Like that was really important too, to, to then stick with us as like, no, she's not just being a jerk. You know, she's emotional and loves him and doesn't want him to leave. So we need to see her run out to try to chase him down. Um, and if we, cause like, imagine, imagine the rest of the movie, if she doesn't run out, you know, then she's just, she's just mad. Right. It's not that she's mad because she loves him. She's mad. She's just mad at him. And that I, I, I think is like, it's very important because the, the anger comes from love instead of the anger is just like, like you failed me. So I don't like you anymore. Like, no, I love you. And so I'm mad at you. Okay, well, that's totally different. And it just with that brilliant director direction of we want we need a, a shot of her running out. That's that's so great. And yes, I love the <laughs> he does this. That was one of the notes I was going to say was like he he does these setups so perfectly in this film where he'll, you know, books falling off at certain moments. Like I told you, let this play out until the book falls as he's <laughs> leaving the room, because later on 
when I was watching this with my kids, my son said, wait, that was when the book fell when he left. Oh, okay. And cause you know, it's been a while since he saw it. He saw it once with me, but that was, that was a while ago. And so this was the first time he'd seen it in a long time. And so he connected a lot of dots. And, uh, and so he noticed that that was just, you know, the books are, are one thing, but there's, there's the looking under the, under the sheet as a hearkening back. There's plenty of other things where he closes loops throughout the whole film harkens back to something that was said before the 90% that you've addressed. It's just, it's so cool. You feel like everything just coalesces into this completeness by the end of the end of the, of the film. So yeah. Anyway, the handshake. Oh, the handshake was a good one, which my Charlotte noticed my daughter who's (laughs) six years old noticed that was he was the handshake. Oh, okay. You know? And so they were asking a lot like, well, wait a minute. Like why? So he was the one who gave them the coordinates and the one who directed himself to NASA. But how is that? You know, like he was asking so many questions about time and everything. It was, it was really, really, really cool. So (laughs) that's awesome. Anyway. Yeah. I love it. I mean, yeah, I I still have stuff that I'm I'm excited to. I can imagine getting at least one more episode out of this. Oh yeah, I yeah. think I would love to for us to read the script before the next viewing, um, and then discuss. You know, it's I've been doing that a lot recently of reading a screenplay and then watching the film and just seeing what was modified and why do I think they chose to do this or that? It's just oddly informative uh, to see what happens on the page versus what results on the screen. Did you know that, that Nolan's, when he sends scripts to actors, he sends them on red paper. Oh, wow. Cause you can't copy it. Cause you can't copy it. <laughs> can't photocopy it. I didn't know that. <laughs> I saw an interview with Jessica Chastain where she showed the script that he sent her and it's a this book of red paper and she explained that you can't copy it whatever and so it showed it was really cool cuz it showed her like mark like you know drawing lines through like xing out lines like uh, i wouldn't say this oh she should say this and writing stuff on in there whatever and it's really really cool wow anyway That's yeah awesome. it's pretty cool <laughs> there was one other thing i guess I don't know. This could be me totally reading too much into stuff. Um, but whenever the, the Tesseract is, is collapsing, Coop is talking to Tars about humanity and like, this is what we evolved to become. It looks like as on his, on his mask face mask, it looks like the, the reflection of the Tesseract is sitting in his third eye. Like it's just above mm-hmm. the center of both eyes. And so it feels like that's kind of this, emblematic idea of what he's discussing this idea of advancing beyond what we are right now. Um, and it's this kind of third eye mentality of, uh, I don't know. Um, and towards the end, whenever he's flying out, uh, we see a similar reflection, but it's not in the same place. It's like a little over his left eye, uh, instead. And I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if there's like some little visual concept behind that, but yeah. I don't know. That that could easily just be me wanting to to make hay, but I like the idea of it. I do too. I do too. Nice. I like the naming conventions too. Coop, you know, yeah. like he's cooped up, like he's trapped, yeah. you know, all the time, you know. Murph obviously Murphy's law. Yeah. Uh yeah. Anyway, good stuff. Uh yeah, amazing. Amazing. Any uh any final thoughts? 
No, I just like I liked the idea, like you know, because the tesseract thing is very confusing to a lot of people, including me, you know, and 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 uh, I th- I like the idea of us creating our own path, past mm. or way forward, you know, not fully understanding it, but just doing it and taking action. I think that that's that's awesome. I love that he addresses, you know, the 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 thing that I think a lot of us would feel being in a, a spaceship for years, you know, the, with Romley, like b- feeling like you're in a tin can, you know, and just having a moment, it took 30 seconds or a minute, you know, of, of, uh, we're explorers, Rom, this is our boat. And I think that more than any other line in the whole movie, I quote all the time <laughs> to my kids. I just say it. They don't even, they didn't even know where it was from, but it's now Simon, when that happened this time watching it, Simon was like, oh, that's why you say that. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I love that, you know, cause it's something that is not necessary yeah. to the movie. It's not necessary, but it's just, we're going to address this thing that I, I'm sure that people would probably, um, you know, think about, but this time watching it also, I thought, how the hell did Romley live 22 years in that, in that spaceship with them gone? Like, Oh my God, just, just crazy. Brutal. Anyway. Uh, no, I, I think that's, that's it, man. That's all I got. Any other closing thoughts for you? I don't think so, man. I'm excited. Uh, I, I'm definitely going to keep my eye on showings, but even right now I have it playing in the background and they just docked the station. I'm like, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to make it <laughs> to uh, to another theater screening. Um, uh, they just docked to the station in the beginning? Uh, at the end. This is the final. Oh, the docking, docking yeah. scene. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so I'm like, I can, I, I imagine once we wrap, I'm probably going to sit and watch the, the end of this film. <laughs> yeah, you got to. You've got it's to. It's just so good, man. It works for me. I don't, I don't know why I love it so much other than it takes me on the emotional journey without, I think. Too many films rely on romance. Like we enjoy that as an audience. We enjoy watching people fall in love and fight for each other. We don't have enough films that address this other kind of love and, and, and totality, right? Like this movie is only about that. Most movies that have this, it's kind of a, an addendum. It's not the thing. Um, And so to do that in a science fiction film and to have so much grounded space and, and science in it is it pushes all the buttons, man. Yeah. Uh. Agreed. 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 Uh, you're like, just going to watch it. with yeah. us. All right. We got to end this. We Todd, end you it. do whatever you're going to do. No, uh, <laughs> all right. What, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Uh, so I, I don't have a, a film that I want to recommend, uh, or a show or anything. I just, I mean, I've been watching stuff, but there's nothing that is pressing for me. One thing that I have been doing for the last couple of months is every morning, the first thing I do when I wake up, I have like a routine now and, and I'd like to recommend it, uh, because it's, it's really helped me not just start my day, but kind of like center myself to make sure that I'm treating myself kindly. Uh, I, I have a problem where I, I think a lot of us do of, of thinking that I'm not enough and thinking that I, sh- you know, obviously we can all do more and stuff, but just thinking, thinking that I'm a failure in a lot of ways and, and all that stuff. And it's just all completely detrimental and false. And, and, and so anyway, my, my routine when I wake up, the first thing I do is, is I drink water 
for the the first thing. Very first. Well, I brush my teeth because I I have to do that because <laughs> I feel gross. But then I, I I drink a I drink some warm water or at least room temperature water, and then I go for a walk. And on that walk, I try to learn something or I I I listen to a podcast or something. I try to like take in information that I didn't have before about something. Doesn't doesn't matter what it is. It, you know, for a while before I went to Paris for vacation, it was I would try to learn as much French as I can. And it doesn't have to be a long walk, 20 minutes. That, that's it. And then uh, I come home and when I can muster it up, I take a cold shower that really wakes me up. It doesn't have to be super cold, just not warm, like something that actually wake, wakes you up. And that really like doesn't take a lot of time. And it just sets me up to be in a good mood to have energy and to, you know, be centered around myself and the, how I'm feeling in the day. And it's, man, I got to tell you has like put me in a much better place. I've, you know, if I'm p- completely honest, I've been pretty depressed lately and I needed a change or at least, at least I needed some kind of like uh, routine. And this, uh, I, I got this from a, a group that I st- started, uh, you know, meeting with, uh, this suggestion and, and it's really helped me. So I uh, morning routine is what I'm going to recommend. Nice. Yeah, That's yeah. huge. I'm going to recommend, uh, the exact opposite. I'm going to recommend staying up all night and drinking coffee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty fun too. Yeah. Uh, no, there's a Netflix has a lot of great shows. If you know where to find them, I guess I discovered one recently called black summer and it's a zombie show. And it's absolutely fantastic. Like I would think, and I do (laughs) that I'm tired of zombies and uh, you've explored it all as much as I care to. And I think to a point that's accurate still, but what makes black summer so good is not that it's necessarily about, you know, apocalypse or something, but it taught me a lot just watching it about the experience of creating a moment and fleshing out a moment because in some ways not a lot happens in the show but you are gripped you are absolutely riveted uh your heart is pounding um, because they're doing such a good job of creating these moments and so if you if you want a new horror show to watch uh and you you looking for something fresh on netflix black summer is absolutely astonishing um, from a filmmaking standpoint, um, even from a performance and, and, you know, story standpoint, they're doing some really great stuff. Uh, but the filmmaking side of things will melt your brain. Um, it's really, really fantastic. And so can't recommend that enough. Uh, yeah. And so let's see, uh, artist spotlight this week, I was looking around, I'm, I was trying to find something, uh, a reference for, you know, my own project. And I stumbled across a music video by Nano Clow from an artist. It's a music video from an artist named Rhodes. Uh, it's titled The Love I Give. And I was really happy to see it because it's an idea that I had years ago that I wanted to do with you, where you do a, a time lapse of the artist singing. That's wildly difficult. And he actually did it. Um, and it's really, really cool. Uh, and it's also shot on super 16. And so you're watching the sunrise over the horizon time-lapse on super 16, uh, 
uh, of a guy in a chair. Um, and so it's not like, I don't know, don't go in expecting like explosions or anything. It's, it's pretty yeah. calm, chill thing. Um, and he doesn't sing the entire time, uh, just kind of moments here and there, but it's, it's really cool, really cool idea. I, I thought they executed it really, really well. Um, and it's, it's a fun watch, you know, um, uh -oh. the song is nice. And so, yeah, check that out. Stay tuned for next week. We have uh, another listener request from my man, Seth, a uh, new listener to the show. He's got a few requests in the pipeline and we still have uh, others as well. And so next week we're going to be taking a look at children of men. This is a terrifying one. This is a, an auteurs uh, sci-fi film. And so we're not done with science fiction yet, mofos. So buckle Thank up. God. Uh, it's going to get dark. Um, yeah. <laughs> and if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, drop us a review, subscribe, uh, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to cover or talk about. Uh, I want to give a big thank you and shout out to our new patron, Derek. Uh, we got some cool stuff coming up for our patrons. I'm working on more bonus content. Uh, I just recorded one yesterday on The Bear, a uh, new show on Hulu. And it's so incredibly good. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. Like it's just the best TV show uh, that I've seen in a, in a while. And it's funny because you say something like that and uh, you don't know why and you're going to look at it and you're going to see that it's in incorrectly labeled as a comedy. It is not a comedy <laughs> What <laughs> on Hulu. They have it labeled as a comedy, I guess, cause it's a half hour. It's definitely not that. No, but not. it's just a little kitchen drama. And so go in expecting a little intimate kitchen drama uh, and you'll be pleasantly surprised. The acting is just unbelievable. Friend of the show, Keyshan uh, and I sat down and, and did a, a bonus episode on that yesterday and that was fun. I think uh, if you're if you're one of our patrons, you'll enjoy it. And if you're not, then uh, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. And if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at thepestpodcast.com slash interstellar three. That's the number three, not the not the spelling. <laughs> Got it. And our quote of the day is from the legendary Kip Thorne, uh, who was the scientific advisor to uh, to Nolan on on Interstellar. Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. I'm so, this is such a great quote, dude. Uh, and it's so timely because lately Simon has been really testing me. My son, who's nine, has been really testing me. I'll tell him something and he'll just ask me a million questions as to why. I'll tell him to do something or not do something. And he'll give me reasons as to why he should or shouldn't and tell him and argue with me. And actually, I think it was two days ago I said, listen, listen, buddy. You're good. I love that you ask questions that you've challenged me. Don't ever stop doing that, but you got to do it with respect. The thing that with me, it's like, just respect me. Yeah. And you can tell me, you can, you can argue with me all day. But the moment you tell me when I, when I say don't hit your sister and you, then you immediately do it, you know, like that's <laughs> disrespectful, you know, things like that. But I told him this exact thing, which was, I love that you're challenging me. I'll keep challenging me. Don't ever not challenge everyone, especially if you disagree with them, but be respectful about it. That's the only thing. Such a great quote. It's beautiful. That's so cool. Good selection. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish, you know, we would do that more because I think we're too comfortable challenging the people that we disagree with and not comfortable enough challenging ourselves 
or the authorities that we've placed in our lives. As we get older, we begin to find authorities uh, and we subject ourselves to them. Instead of growing up, you're, you know, Simon's authority right now. Uh, and to some degree, you will, you always will be. But as he moves out into the world, he's going to find his own sources of authority. Um, and we have to be comfortable challenging that or second guessing ourselves and, and mm -hmm. finding, you know, some kind of harmony with all of that. Cause it can't just be uh, questioning everything or else you end up with a tinfoil hat. Um, you have to make peace with what, you know, what you think, you know, um, and things that you can just simply never know. Um, and you just have to trust uh, and you have to figure out your own process for that. And so I, 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 love this quote for that because like you said he was a uh, an advisor for him um and in this film you know they're they're challenged at the very beginning to think for themselves whenever you have the school saying hey uh up is down you know uh, mm -hmm. and he's like you can't tell me that you know um yeah. and then he, he goes immediately to tell murph uh, i got you suspended <laughs> yeah right right you know and right. some sometimes you got to make that bed um and so yeah i love that as a as a general guiding philosophy um there's no such thing as unthinking respect for for anyone it's always thinking respect um yeah and, and and that's how you avoid, hopefully, as much as possible uh, pitfalls. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even on Miller's Planet, you know, like, I, I know Kip knew this, but on Miller's Planet, there's not enough gravity for that much time slippage to happen while they're there. It's just, they would be ripped to shreds. There's no way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's for the story, right? Like, things need to happen. Right. And uh, there's so much accuracy in this film that that has to be something that Kip knew. And, you know, and Nolan was like, yeah, we're going to do it my way for this time. You know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. So, and I'll bet Kip, you know, had a little laugh about it or something, That's you know. That's so true. So, yeah. Nice. Anyway, dude, a third time. Fun. So much fun. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Obviously, all of these, when we do Interstellar, it's going to be a long one. You know, get your popcorn digging. <laughs> uh, but but thank you for joining us. Uh, please review us on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, wherever you or, or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends. It all helps a lot. Uh, if you're a patron, thank you so much. If not, maybe think about it. A couple bucks. It goes a long way. I know this gets this gets expensive uh, for you, Wes. So, but also thank you to Wes for for everything you do for this podcast. I know you know it's your baby for the, for sure. But and you're just taking me along, and I appreciate that. Every time I'm on this with you, I learn something new. But yeah, uh, join us next time next week when we're going to be doing Children of Men. Um, and if you have a review. Share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Movies.